0: To learn more about CODE, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E-Health.com, or email CODE directly at Partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Today, Joe Pfeiffer concludes his series on CFOs with Janie Wade of SCL Health. Wade, who is fairly new to the CFO role, talks about her impressions during her first few years, as well as how her organization is working to meet consumer needs when consumers don't often use the tools they're given.
1: Well, today, I am really lucky to have as my guest, Janie Wade. Janie is the executive vice president and CFO of SCL Health, which is headquartered in Denver and has a big presence in Colorado and Montana and a little bit in Kansas. All told, SCL has 11 hospitals. It's a faith-based organization. SCL stands for uh, Sisters of Charity of Leavenworth, and it was started way back in 1864. So Janie is an active member of our large system CFO council, where I've gotten to know her and really appreciate her input there. So with all that, Janie, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So you're nearing the end of a series of interviews I've done with CFOs, and some of them have been longtime CFOs, but you're fairly new to your role, having taken your position at SCL Health only, I think, two years ago it was, although obviously you have extensive background as a finance leader before that. But I'm just curious, how does your experience as a CFO compare with your expectations? Have you had any unforeseen challenges? How's it gone? I think it's gone pretty well.
2: In terms of unforeseen challenges, I wouldn't say too many of them. But, you know, I worked for Fred Salvesberg at Baylor Scott & White Health. He was also a pretty active member. And he did, I think, a perfect, excellent job of preparing me to be a CFO. <laughs> um, but he spent a lot of his time in talent development. And I think it, it paid off, um, certainly in my career. And he exposed me to a lot of different areas of finance while I worked for him. And I worked for Lydia before that, uh, when she was at Baylor Scott & White Health. And or it was Baylor then, Baylor Healthcare System. And so I've had a, a lot of people that I've worked with over the years, Mark Taridi and others who helped to develop me as a finance leader. And I think that I was more than ready. I just you know, had kids to raise. Right. So you just can't pick up and move and across the country until the time's right, both personally and professionally. So not a lot of unforeseen challenges. You know, there's always something here and there. You know, I'm getting used to the snow in Colorado versus Texas, that kind of thing
1: timing is everything and uh, you know everybody's got some challenges to balance and and the timing is right it's interesting as i'm listening to your answer i think of you know in sports coaching they talk about a you know a lineage and what coach has their their assistant coaches take on those jobs later on and it's you just listening to you describe all your mentors over the years it's very much like that there's a great lineage and a and a good connection i'm sure one other thing i'd say You mentioned Lydia. Lydia Jumanville is a longtime friend of HFMA as well, is a former CFO of your organization and now CEO. So uh, you get to work for a former CFO.
2: Yes, and in some days that's a good thing and some days that's a bad thing. (laughs) I
1: can imagine, yeah. (laughs) and I imagine that Lydia would probably say the same thing sometimes. Yeah, Yeah, that's terrific. So, uh, yeah, you know, again, I've had a series of these interviews and they've been a lot of fun and you're the first female CFO I've Interviewed for this podcast, and I don't have data on how many females are CFO of a major health system. I would say that women make up a significant part of our large system CFO council, which, as I mentioned, you're a member of. But I guess with that in mind, do you have any specific, I don't know, challenges that you see as a female executive, or, or even does it bother you that I would even ask that question?
2: Oh, it definitely doesn't bother me. I don't think I have any significant challenges with it. Part of that, though, is I I do think I'm relatively sheltered in a great organization right now. You know, the CEO is a woman. We talked about Lydia. The chief legal officer is a woman. The chief human resource officer is a woman. Chief strategy officer is a woman. Of course, chief nursing officer is a woman. That's pretty typical. And then then I'm here. So our our marketing and communications SVP is, is a female. So. You know, we are actually pretty female heavy at the top levels and our board has made a really conscious effort to have a diverse board. We still have some of the sisters on our board, but then we also have IT leaders, former rating agency analysts, former business executives who are all female. So I think I'm probably somewhat sheltered in that aspect and that I'm in an organization that's on the leading edge of having a lot of women in leadership roles. You know, early in my career, obviously, when I had little kids, I had a, and still do have a very supportive husband. And we worked as a team to make sure that neither of our careers were harmed by, you know, sick kiddos and we'd split the days and things like that. That was unusual back when I had kids 20 years ago, 22 years ago. But now, when I see people have children here, it's very common for the dad to take a paternity leave and to take time off. So what I had was unusual, but here in 2020, that's, that's pretty typical now and it's pretty standard. So it's interesting to see, I don't feel old, but I've seen a lot of change. And so I must be getting old.
1: <laughs> oh, no, I, I don't think that's the case, but uh, what a, an interesting dynamic. It would be, it would be kind of fun to study what the dynamic of your organization might be versus, you know, the more male dominated cultures. I just think it's wonderful you make reference to some of the guys taking you know, their paternal time off and in supporting the families. I do see that as a change in our culture. And I'm I'm personally really happy about that. I was an active father through all of my days as an executive in healthcare. And, you know, some days it was crazy and, you know, I made it work and uh, did a lot of coaching and read stories to my kids at night. What you're saying is that that's really fully supported there as well. And I, I think that's um, not only just laudable but i think it it creates a culture that people can be really dedicated to the organization because they feel supported there
2: yeah i, I agree i think people now uh, younger people they're looking for that particularly colorado i would say is a state where people are very focused on work life balance you move here for a reason and they want to be able to get out to all of that stuff that people travel here to see the mountains and the biking and and all of that and um, so they're looking for work-life balance, but they are very focused on family work-life balance as well.
1: And I'm sure you're also focused on the business thing. So let's jump into some industry-specific stuff. You know, I've been pretty outspoken over these last couple of months about a topic that, quite frankly, HFMA has been talking about for over 15 years, and that is consumerism. And I've gone on record with some interviews in the article recently saying that we need to pay closer attention to the needs of the healthcare consumer. Now, I know your former organization, Baylor, Scott & White, received the HFMA MAP Award back in 2014 when I think you were there and mm-hmm. and is a recipient of the MAP Certificate of Recognition and Revenue Cycle Achievement in several years. Now, switching to your organization now, since you have that as part of your background, how do you see yourself as a CFO addressing consumerism in this day and age?
2: Well, you know, it's it's everywhere. And I would say the biggest impact, I mean, RevCycle is an area where we pay close attention to it, and we're trying to fully utilize the Epic functionality. And our revenue cycle team here is, is in a position now where they feel like they want to start looking at the MAP award and, and seeing, hey, maybe we're hitting all these things. Let's see if about applying and kind of going down that road and having that journey. We have a very old Epic build, and so we we're fortunate and we're one of the early Epic customers. And so we have a lot of things we love about it, but we really need to to modernize our Epic platform and take advantage of all of those things that help the patient. Part of the healthcare system that kind of lets everybody down, honestly, even in a really, really well-functioning revenue cycle, nobody likes it. No, no patient likes the bill paying experience in that part of healthcare, but we're working on that. But then really more broadly, We've opened up online scheduling. We've got a partnership with ZocDoc, which is almost like an open table for doctors. And so we've got a partnership in Denver with them that helps patients who may be new to SCL Health find a doctor that has openings and takes their insurance plans. So we're doing more of that. We have a digital services committee led by our IT organization, but it's got a lot of people there from innovation, finance, marketing, the clinical side. And just looking at all things digital, really just kind of opening that world up in a lot of our markets, this is going to take some time because we're 70% governmental in a couple of our markets, 80%. So we still are getting something of order of magnitude, like 30,000 calls a a month in our call center. There are still people who want to call and talk to a person. Now, I I don't like to call and talk to people. I want to just do the little (laughs) live chat, or I just want my answer to be in your FAQs. But there are still a lot of people who want to call and talk to a human being. And so you really have to do both the digital and the interpersonal. You have to have both. And that's, that's not cheap, as we know, as finance leaders.
1: No, it all involves people. You know, it's interesting. You make the comment, you know, no one likes it. And, and you're right. I mean, especially in today's day and age of, of higher and higher deductibles but to avoid it it doesn't make the issue go away so i applaud you for you know, pursuing you know a map award and you know and the award is one thing but it's the journey it's the improvements that are made it's it's taking a fresh look at your processes and the words that are used in the narratives with consumers uh, it's that journey to improve that it's really the issue the map award is kind of like the icing on the cake for some so i applaud you for going after that and uh, you know, I offer this to all kinds of people. there's ways that HFMA can help that we would be right there with you. So
2: well thank you. I appreciate that. Probably the one thing I should mention that, that to me is consumerism, but I don't know that we think about it this way. But in in what's called the front range, which is the Denver metro area, there are four large healthcare systems and we are sort of known as the low cost, high quality provider. We're starting to see through more and more of the transparency initiatives what we always thought was the case, which is our rates are lower. And you don't really ever find a finance officer bragging about their low commercial rate, right? But it's starting to work to our advantage, actually, in that we've learned to live on less from the commercial standpoint, which you know benefits the patient in the end and the employer, who is also a huge purchaser. So we're working really hard to kind of capitalize on that. We are the low-cost provider in town. In Montana and out in the Western Colorado, those are where we're very heavily governmental and you can see over the years where we've had to leverage commercial rates to make those viable enterprises and we're, we're working on bringing the cost down out there, at least keeping it below the rate of inflation, but in, in places where we can, bringing our commercial rates down. Which, if you would tell me something like that ten or fifteen years ago, I, I never would have thought that that was something that I would be focused on in my career. And it is a it is a big change for our managed care contracting team to to have to work through that. It's just not something that's been in their skill set. And, and trying sure. to balance rates across markets and things like that. So that's one of the things we're trying to do that helps the patient and the consumer in the end.
1: Don't you think in the long run? As transparency becomes more prevalent and the focus on payment by commercial payers continues to get (laughs) hotter and hotter, don't you think the low-cost, high-quality provider ultimately will win?
2: Well, we're kind of betting on it, right? Otherwise, we're making a big mistake. The hard part today is that consumers don't really use the transparency tools available to them. But, you know, I've had transparency tool available to me through Baylor or now SCL through our insurance company. You go on the website and you you can see if I go do this procedure at this place how much it'll cost me versus someplace else. They're not perfect, but we just don't see very many consumers using those. Providers are being pushed all the time to put transparency out there. And what we do have out is seldom used. Those websites get very few hits. We've talked to some of the payers and said, what's your uptake rate on your tools? and frankly they don't see people using them very much so that's really what's kind of disappointing is how do you get the message out and how do the patients who are actually making the choices actually see that data and how do you make it useful to them
1: well it is a dilemma and if nothing else it's a black eye for our industry you know across the country in total that you know we need to get rid of we could probably talk forever on consumerism especially with your attitude i just love what i'm hearing but probably should move on to another series of questions that I'm curious what your thoughts are. If you listen to the CFO series, a number of these longtime CFOs have shared that their role over the years has become much more strategic, focused on driving long-term organizational value more than maybe what people would think is a traditional finance role. So I guess with that in mind, and my, my first guess would be you would share that opinion, but Then going forward, if you had to project what a healthcare CFO role would look like in five or 10 years, what do you see coming?
2: You know, that's so hard because I, feel like I've been so wrong for uh, so many years. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> I'm
1: not I'm you not very i <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good
2: accountant. I can tell you what already happened, but <laughs> tell you what's gonna happen is difficult. Exactly. I think you know, I would love to see that we really do make the move into value based healthcare. It is it is just amazing to me how slowly we have moved. I first got into a finance role in a healthcare system in 1999, just as the Balanced Budget Act had passed and everything was kind of coming down on us. And you know, you were closing a lot of services that, frankly, today we need in order to perform in a value-based world. And I don't see that we have really, in, particularly in the markets that we're in, Denver and Montana, the focus there has really turned to price as opposed to total cost of care. And so we're big on the total cost of care concept, but we're just not seeing it take hold with employers. We're not seeing it take hold with the legislative bodies and and the government here. So I would love to say in five to 10 years, we're in more of a value-based world where we're keeping that total cost of care low, and that's what I would love to see, but I've been saying that for such a long time, and the progress has been really slow.
1: It sure has, and just last week, I saw some recent data about that quantified not just the slow uptake, but uh, even the, the attitudes of a group of CEOs that were surveyed really spelled that out in, in spades. They're preparing for it, but not really executing on value-based contracts, and so, It has been a slow move. Obviously, you know, sema Verma and CMS had some pretty bold predictions of where they wanted to see it go. And I think we're well behind even what some of those standards were supposed to be. And so it's an interesting conversation because some people think that if we don't gravitate toward more value-based payments and hold down the total cost of care, then, you know, what we're staring in the eye is, is a more... And I don't want to get into the politics of this, but just, uh, you know, getting into a more fixed price environment, whether it's on a Medicare for all or some you know form of that. You know, if we don't control our own cost through value based payment, then maybe we're looking at a price setting environment. So who yeah, knows where that's going to go?
2: Yeah, I, no, I agree with you. And I, we're certainly seeing that in our environment is that state governments have decided they want to get um, more into a rate setting Mode. Well, once you get into that, it, it really takes a lot of those value based things. You know, it, it makes them much more difficult to do. So I think you're right. We got to figure out an answer or it's going to be given to us.
1: Again, not to get into the politics, but I just am a believer that we are such a complex industry. The chances of a solution being given to us, whether it's by politicians or anybody outside of the industry, the chances of them getting it right because of the complexity, I just think is slim. And so you know that might start to tip my hand in terms of politics i don't mean it to but i think that we in the industry we know our business and we know the complexities and we just need to make better progress on the total cost of care you know that's an interesting there is so much focused on price and yet that's not how any other part of our economy works you know you buy a car you don't worry about the component pricing you just worry about the total cost of the car And uh, healthcare, we don't seem to talk enough about the total cost of care. So I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm glad you guys are focused on that. Because at the end of the day, I think that is how our industry should be measured.
2: Yeah, I agree. Yes, you do want to care about that price in the hospital, but the goal really ought to be you don't go to the hospital. That's Um, right. So, yeah, Yeah, when you do end up there, it might be a little bit more expensive than it used to be, you know, because you still have this huge hospital that you've got to support that infrastructure for. But the goal ought to be you don't go to the hospital as often. And so overall, for that person and that individual, the cost is lower, including time away from work, right? That's what a lot of those digital solutions are about. And, hey, if I don't have to drive to my doctor, sit in the waiting room just to have him kind of take a look at my throat and tell me what I already knew when I walked in there. If I can do that digitally, I mean, you know, I'm back to work faster and I'm more productive and I don't use up my PTO and things like that. So there's there's there are costs to the consumer that the employer and the, and the provider don't even really see.
1: You know, one of my favorite stories to tell, uh, and it picks up on your example, it was a holiday morning and I woke up and I had a raging sore throat. And long story short, I did one of those video appointments and uh, it was kind of funny because I was talking to a PA and you know she was asking me a couple of different questions and then she asked me to to hold my phone so the camera would look down in my mouth and then my throat and uh, so I thought that was hilarious but the whole episode took me 15 minutes and I didn't have to go to urgent care I didn't have to do anything else uh, this was a holiday and a couple of years ago and uh, I just really appreciate it it was much more efficient and so you're absolutely right. Shifting gears a little bit here, some of the, the common themes that have come up in these interviews has been the CFO's focus on analytics. And I'm wondering how are you and SDL looking at the whole development of analytics and whether it's in predictive analytics or whether you're hiring actuaries, you know, on the people side or how you're approaching this this whole world of analytics?
2: Well, you know, without a lot of value-based contracts and no health plan, we're not hiring a lot of actuaries. We are focused on analytics. I think I would say we really feel behind on the analytics front, and you probably have heard this before. We have a lot of data, but you know, how do you make that information and how do you make that actionable? We have a new chief information officer, Craig uh, Richardville, who came to us about a year ago. His focus right now is on streamlining our analytics tools and saying, okay, what's going to be the t- source of truth? And pulling out as much out-of-the-box capability as we can get out of, out of Epic. We're, uh, we're going to a new ERP over the next 15 months with Oracle, but really with any system, how much of the out-of-the-box analytics can we use? Part of making healthcare less expensive is getting our costs down. And so what we're finding is we're paying for the same data and information four and five different times, and it doesn't tell you exactly the same thing. What happens is people don't trust it anymore, and they and they won't take action on it because they're getting five different answers. We're trying to figure out, you know, how to streamline our analytics functions as much as possible, and what can you bring out of the box, and then what do you need to build on your own. And we have a lot of really really talented people. I'm glad to say that the most talented ones work in the finance organization.
1: Absolutely, um, of course.
2: <laughs> but. Um, one of the things I really appreciate is I have an amazing amount of information around RevCycle. And, you know, we have ability to monitor what's going on in accounts receivable at a very detailed level if we want to. And we can see the high level trends. And And so I, I'm a big supporter of analytics, having, you know, been responsible for that for many years at Baylor. And I think really our goal is, OK, how do you make it trustworthy? How do you make it as inexpensive as possible because you can spend a lot of money to get a lot and and then nobody knows what to do with it. We have a multidisciplinary team that's clinical, financial, IT, operational, around analytics and and sort of guiding that that the vision for our organization.
1: Well, you know, we work in an industry that's filled with scientists and that's not limited to physicians, but you know, all kinds of folks and I think it's created a culture where if data is inconsistent or it's viewed as wrong, then it's more than you know one step forward, two steps back, it's multiple steps back. And it's hard to rebuild that trust when your data is wrong. So I think you're spot on and, and uh, it's just great to hear how you're approaching it. I've taken a whole bunch of your time. I just have one more final question that I would like to ask. If you could say one thing to our audience or even the industry at large to improve the healthcare system, What would it be?
2: I think it's really making sure that the senior leaders in an organization have really communicated down to the staff level what the vision and the mission of your organization is. The best example I can give is we see all of these articles coming out day after day about healthcare systems that are garnishing wages and putting liens Mm. on people's homes and balance billing and doing all of these things that I would suspect the CFO and the CEO have no idea is happening. And, and those aren't being done by people in your organization who have are working with malice. They think they're doing a good job, right? They think they're bringing cash in the door. That's their job. And I think a lot of times, you know, you get so many levels down and I don't think that the mission and the vision and the spirit that you have in the boardroom and in the in the C-suite necessarily gets translated into what happens to the patient every day. And I think you know I say that from a revenue cycle focus, but I think I would tell you my clinical partners would say the same thing. the things that they think, well, of course we would never do X, Y, and Z with the patient. you know and then it turns out you find out, oh my gosh, we did that. The patient doesn't see the CEO, the CFO, the chief clinical officer. The patient sees the nurse, the collector. Those are the people who touch the patient, and you want to make sure that those people really understand what is the ultimate vision and mission of your organization and how you want to operate.
1: Yeah, and what a challenge that is. I remember that in my Spectrum Health days. When I left, I think we had 18,000 employees or somewhere around there, about the same as you. And uh, it's it's an overwhelming task to try to communicate to all those frontline folks. It's a never-ending challenge, that's for sure. Well, hey, this has been as as enjoyable as I thought it would be. Uh, your attitude is refreshing. I love your approach. You've been a great addition to our our large system CFO council, and now we have thousands of members that see why. so thank you for taking time precious time out of your schedule and and spending some time with me and our members today.
0: All right. Well, I appreciate it. And thanks for having me. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Special thanks to Nick Hutt, Mary Mirabelli, and Rick Gundling for their help with this production. Finally, we always welcome your feedback and invite you to reach out to us with your questions and comments at podcasthfma.org.